If you have your Bibles with you this morning, I want to invite you to open up to Acts chapter 26. We find uh, Paul, the hero of our story the last several weeks, is on trial again. But God has orchestrated an event. Remember last time we talked about the providence of God and how the fingerprints of God, so often if we're willing to look back in our life, whether the things we went through were difficult or not, if we're willing to look back, we can see His fingerprints. We see experiences that happen or opportunities where we were able to provide a witness or a testimony that maybe we wouldn't have been able to do any other way except the Lord had done exactly what He had done in our lives. We see that for Paul. We see Paul gathered before King Agrippa and Bernice, Festus the governor, and many other people there in attendance to hear his answer to the charges. Well, for Paul, his answer to the charges with which he had been charged was an opportunity for him to say, to speak the truth of the gospel of of Christ, what God has done in his life. To explain the real reason he was on trial was not because he had done anything wrong, but because he had made a choice to stand for Jesus Christ. And when we stand for the Lord, people won't like it. Well, you can see it. You may have experienced it yourself. But this is the reality of what God's Word lays out for us. So let's take a look. In chapter 26 together, it says, Then Agrippa said to Paul, You are permitted to speak for yourself. So Paul stretched out his hand and answered for himself, I think myself happy, King Agrippa, because today I shall answer for myself before you concerning all the things of which I am accused by the Jews, especially because you are expert in all customs and questions which have to do with the Jews. Therefore I beg you to hear me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, which was spent from the beginning among my own nation at Jerusalem, all the Jews know, they knew me from the first, if they were willing to testify that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived a Pharisee. And now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. To this promise our twelve tribes earnestly serving God night and day hope to attain. For this hope's sake, King Agrippa, I am accused by the Jews. Why should it be thought incredible by you that God raises the dead? Indeed, I myself thought I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. This I also did in Jerusalem. And many of the saints I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often and in every synagogue, compelled them to blaspheme. And being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. And while thus occupied, as I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests, at midday, O king, along the road, I saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun, shining around me and those who journeyed with me. 
And when we all had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice speaking to me and saying in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So I said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to make you a minister and a witness both of the things which you have seen and of the things which I will yet reveal to you. And I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you to open their eyes in order to turn them from the darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in Me. Therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus and in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea and then to the Gentiles that they should repent turn toward God and do works befitting repentance. For these reasons the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. Therefore, having obtained help from God to this day, I stand witnessing both to small and great, saying no other things things than those which the prophets and Moses said would come, that the Christ would suffer, that He would be the first to rise from the dead, and would proclaim light to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. And now as he thus made his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are beside yourself. Much learning is driving you mad. But he said, I am not mad, most noble Festus, but speak the words of truth and reason. For the king before whom I also speak freely knows these things, for I am convinced none of these things escapes his attention. Since this thing was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you do believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, You almost persuade me to become a Christian. Paul said, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me today, might become both almost and altogether such as I am, except for these chains. And when he said these things, the king stood up, as well as the governor and Bernice and those who sat with them. And when they had gone aside, they talked among themselves, saying, This man is doing nothing deserving of death or chains. And Agrippa said to Festus, He might have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we come before You this morning, Lord, and we pray that You would open our eyes to the truth of Your Scripture. God, that we would see that truly a great light has dawned. As we enter into this season where we celebrate the the star that showed the way to the Messiah, the Mashiach Nagid, as we consider the way that the light has come, I pray, Lord, that men would leave the darkness and come to the light. That they would receive all that You have for them. God, that You would move in a mighty way through Your Word as we seek to give You honor and glory in this place. We praise Your name in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Paul, in his final defense, we see 
in court. Now it's interesting as we look. Remember I was telling you about the providence of God. The players that are, that are set before Him. It's kind of amazing to remember. Let's just back up in chapter 25. In verse 23, look what it says. It says, So the next day, when Agrippa and Bernice had come with great pomp, and entered the auditorium with the commanders and the prominent men of the city, at Festus' command, Paul was brought in. So who all is gathered there? you got King Agrippa, the king of the Jews. You have Bernice, his youngest sister, who is living in an incestuous relationship with him at the current time, and who will become the mistress of both Vespasian and Titus. Each served as emperor or Caesar of Rome. Titus is the one who destroys Jerusalem and tears down the temple. You have Festus. Festus is a politician. He wants to know how things look to everyone around him. He worships power. And he's a materialist. Sensible Roman. Sensible Roman who, whose concept was you can worship anything you want. Just don't begin to infringe your worship on me. And that becomes a problem for believers. At least those who take the Great Commission seriously, which says, go into all the world and make disciples of all men. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them the things I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you even to the end of the age. This is a a call that God had given. You see, in Rome, you could live in peace as long as you just kept your peace. Keep your beliefs to yourself. Sort of a don't ask, don't tell policy in terms of Christianity. To be honest, in our country, we're not too far from that today. From the don't ask, don't tell concept of faith in Christ. Well, the scripture goes on to tell us in verse 24. Festus said, King Agrippa and all the men who are here present with us, you see this man uh, with whom the whole assembly of the Jews petitioned me, both of Jerusalem and here, crying out that he was not fit to live any longer. But when I found that he had committed nothing deserving of death, interesting, he's still in chains, And that he himself had appealed to Augustus, I decided to send him. But I have nothing of certain to write to my Lord concerning him. Therefore I brought him out before you, and especially you, King Agrippa, so that after examination has taken place, I might have something to write. For it seems unreasonable to send a prisoner to Caesar and not to specify the charges. Yeah, it's a little unreasonable. Caesar would not be very happy about that, right? He's got to have something with which to write. So what has God brought? King Agrippa, the king of the Jews. Bernice, a couple that is wrapped up in immorality, yet God has moved in the universe so that He could present His best, Paul, before them to share with them the gospel. You see, it's not that God looks at him and says, Man, your sin is so horrible, I don't have time for you. You're too far out there, so you stay out there and I'll just go my own way. No, God orchestrates events so that Paul can stand before them. But not only him, all the prominent men of the city. Caesarea was a big place. They're all gathered together to hear what Paul has to say. 
in His defense. And as they come in, the Scripture says they came in with pomp. And, and, and the word for pomp is, is the word fantasia. It's uh, like this spectacle. The picture is you'd have Agrippa and Bernice coming in in purple because they're royalty. And then following them would be Festus in this crimson red uh, Roman get-up, you know, with a long flowing cape. Behind him would come all the commanders of their thousands, all wearing their, their parade best uniforms, all the gold and all the crimson that, that Rome uh, would have on their, on their soldiers. And then as they come in, following them is all the prominent men, the, the uppity-ups, the people of, of town that want to know what's going on, and all the Jews who had brought their charges against them. They're all gathered in one auditorium in one place. They're all gathered in that place. And then Festus says, bring them out. Now you picture Paul. He's under what Rome would call house arrest. But house arrest in Rome was a little different than house arrest for us. They didn't necessarily have a prison there in Caesarea. What they had were cisterns that were empty. And so they would keep prisoners in a cistern. That would be where they would stay. They were allowed to have visitors. They were allowed to, to see people. In fact, you'll remember that Felix said, don't stop people from seeing or providing for Paul. But this was where he was kept, on a stone floor. He's been there for two years. No bed. For two years awaiting this opportunity to stand before this couple who are kind of messed up, right? To stand before this governor who doesn't really want to be bothered by your concept of religion and all the people of the town. And coming out is this guy in tattered rags. Probably limping a little bit. At least I would be if I was sleeping on a stone floor for two years. He comes walking out and you would see the spectacle. All this bright color and all this majesty and beauty sitting in the seats and coming up this little ragged Martus. This witness of the Lord. And whenever I think about it, when I think about the concepts, I, I think not only was there all that pomp and circumstance, God was there. God was there. Do you remember what it was that Jesus told His disciples? In Luke chapter 12, verse 11 and 12, listen to what He said. Now when they bring you to the synagogues and to magistrates and authorities, do not worry about how or what you should answer or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. God said, when they bring you before people like this, when they make you a spectacle, I'll give you the words. Just be faithful. Don't worry about what you're going to say or how you're going to say it. Just stand in my strength and I'll be with you. Luke chapter 21. Then Jesus said to them, Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be great earthquakes in various places, famines, pestilence. And there will be fearful sights and great signs in the heavens. But before all these things, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to synagogues and prisons. You will be brought before kings and rulers for my name's sake. But it will turn out for you as an occasion for testimony 
Therefore, settle it in your hearts not to meditate beforehand on what you're going to say. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which all of your adversaries will not be able to contradict or resist. He said, I'll give you the words. I'm reminded almost immediately of Revelation. In fact, as we look at Luke 21, Jesus is in the midst of His Olivet Discourse. He's talking about future events. He's looking on the timeline to our time. And He's saying to us, just like He said to His disciples, they will persecute you. Maybe not here right now, but somewhere. The Lord may call you someplace, just like He called Pastor Saeed whose only crime is he's a believer. That's it. But he said, don't worry about it. When it happens, just remember I'm with you. And I will give you words that will confound the men who stand before you. They won't be able to contradict or resist. What have we heard from Pastor Saeed? Only that guards, the same guards who beat him, are getting saved. The prisoners in the darkest place on earth are coming to know Jesus Christ. God has orchestrated the events so that He could put a little bit of light in a very dark place. See, that's what God wants from us all. A little light in a dark place. Scripture goes on to tell us in Matthew 10, Jesus said, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. You know, a lot of times I hear people quote that. I used to have a buddy who was in what I would call a Christian cult. Um, and he would always run around saying, The Bible says, be wise as serpents. Be wise as serpents. Be wise as serpents. You're not talking about the rest of the verse, brother. Yeah, be wise as a serpent, but harmless as a dove. We've got to trust in the Lord in His hand. He says, but beware of men, for they will deliver you up to councils. They'll scourge you in their synagogues. You'll be brought before governors and kings for my sake. And as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. But when they deliver you up, do not worry about how or what you should speak. For it will be given you in that hour what you should speak. For it is not you who speaks, but the Spirit of the Father who speaks in you. And Jesus said, I will never leave you or forsake you. And He meant it. He's with Paul right now. In in Revelation chapter 12, we're told that the, the great red dragon, the day will come when He'll be cast out of heaven. And he'll come to earth looking around because he's angry and he wants to attack the people, the children of God. Revelation 12 says they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to the death. You see, it says they overcame by the blood of the Lamb. That's how we're all saved, right? The blood of the Lamb. And then they speak how? With the word of their testimony. Do you know that you can talk to anybody with that? I don't care, atheist, agnostic, crazy, wild-eyed, maniacal person. You may not be able to get them to talk 
out of the Scripture, but you can definitely share your testimony, your God story, what God's done in your life. And you'll be amazed as you share what God's done in your life. The Word of God comes out. Because the Spirit of God is the one that's going to guide you as you share. The Word of their testimony, there's no arguing against your testimony. All they can do is hate you for your testimony, but they can't argue the testimony. And the third part, they did not love their lives to the death. They didn't cling to this life. They didn't cling to their stuff. They didn't cling to the things that they have, that they possess. They just wanted to serve the Lord. And if it cost them everything, it cost them everything. That's how they overcame the enemy. So here we see Paul. The Scripture tells us, standing before these, these fellows, says Agrippa said to Paul, you're permitted to speak. So Paul stretched out his hand. That's what they would do. Hey, I'm happy to tell you, King Agrippa, because today I will finally answer for myself before you concerning all the things of which I am accused by the Jews. Especially because you are an expert. You see, this is why, this is why Festus had Agrippa there. Festus doesn't understand this Jewish religion. He doesn't get what they're talking about. He doesn't understand resurrection of the dead. To to him, this is a bunch of nonsense. I need somebody who knows what in the world these people are talking about. So the king of the Jews is there. Agrippa, you're an expert. You're an expert in the customs and questions which have to do with the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to hear me. And he begins his story. Testimonies, as always, begin in the same place. What I was, what happened to me, who I am in Christ. That's a testimony. He begins with what I was. I lived a Pharisee. Listen to this. My manner of life from my youth, which was spent beginning among my own nation in Jerusalem, all the Jews know. They knew me from the first, if they're willing to testify that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived a Pharisee. He says, hey, this is what I was. I was a Pharisee. Now, I want you to hear a pray that you understand what Paul's saying. Paul's saying, I didn't spend my life looking for Jesus. I was a Pharisee. I had the Word. I had religion. I had everything I wanted. I wasn't looking for anything else. I was achieving success in, in, as a Pharisee. He was climbing above his contemporaries. He was becoming all that he could be. He goes on to say, Scripture tells he was a son of a Pharisee. And he says, these guys know me. Look what he said. They knew me from the beginning. The fellows sitting up there, I used to play Parcheesi with them. We get together every other weekend and occasionally we play spades or hearts or... Don't you know Paul hung out with these guys? It's not like they heard of Paul. Oh, who's this Paul guy? No, they used to hang out. They were part of the same crew. Paul says, they knew me. They knew me. If they would stand up here and tell you, they knew me when I was a Pharisee. He says, not only was I a Pharisee, but I believed according to the strictest sense. In verse 6, Now I stand and am in judge for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. He says, the reason I'm here is because I finally started to read and understand God showed me. I saw the light. We'll get to that in a minute. But as God showed me, I, I finally realized 
The truth was here all along. I believe what the Bible says. That's what Paul says. I was a Pharisee. I know the Bible inside and out, and I believe it. Every word. Every sentence, every pause, every structure of every part of every piece of the Word of God. Not just this part or that part. Not the, I don't take that old stuff, but I'm okay with the new stuff. No, he said, all of it. I believe in the promise. Listen, the Bible, folks, tells one story. People think it tells a lot of stories. It tells one. God's redemption of man. How God saves men. That's the story of the Word of God. The promised deliverer. There's lots of deliverers in the Bible. Every deliverer is a picture of the Messiah. The promised deliverer who would take away our sins. The Messiah. The Greek word for Messiah, Mashiach in Hebrew, the Greek word is Christ. See, you didn't even know you knew Greek. Some people walk around, every time they stub their toe, they say Greek words. They don't even know. Have no idea what they're saying. Man, it's, it's true, Paul says. Every word, the promise I hold on to, I believe. To this promise, Paul says, are twelve tribes earnestly serving God night and day, hope to attain. For this promise sake, King Agrippa, I am accused by the Jews. I believe, and he said, the resurrection is everything. The resurrection is everything. Verse 8, why should it be thought incredible by you that God raises the dead? Paul said, I believe the Bible. Was there any resurrection ever in the Bible before Jesus? Sure there was. Sure there was. God raised the dead. Both Elijah and Elisha raised the dead. So Paul's saying, I believe every time the Bible talked about the resurrection of the dead, it was a picture, a foreshadowing of the resurrection of the Messiah He says, I just believe it. I don't just think it's words. I actually believe it. Why would you think it's incredible that God raised the dead? It's all over here. It's in the book. If you get past Genesis 1, you've heard it said, you should be able to get through the rest of it, right? In the beginning, God. That word created is the Hebrew word bara. That God created from nothing everything. So you can create a lot of stuff from stuff. There are very artistic people here who have a lot of abilities to create. But God's the only one who can create from nothing. In other words, put them in a vacuum, in space, nothing. No building blocks, nothing. And God made the universe. He spoke it. And it became. So why should it be thought? Why should you stumble over the concept of the resurrection? If you believe this, you can't. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul would say the resurrection is, is everything that the, that the gospel hangs upon. In 1 Corinthians 15, 13, it says, But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, our preaching is useless, and your faith is useless, and we are found false witnesses of God. Because we have testified of God that He raised Christ if He did not raise Him up. And if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. And you are still in your sin. And all those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. 
If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. But listen, I know, he says, now I know Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. How does he know Christ is risen from the dead? Well, that's part of his testimony. He saw him on a Damascus road when he saw the light. Jesus came to him. He saw him. He spoke to him. You say, oh, Paul, Paul was just some religious fanatic. Listen, do you hear what I said in the beginning? Paul's killing Christians. He's not out there looking for Christ. He's not searching for the truth. He's killing them. What changed him? It's not one night he was at a bar and he met some guy. They got drunk. The guy was talking to him, shared him about Christ. He started feeling like, you know, maybe this Jesus is a real deal. And he got saved. That didn't happen. One day he's killing Christians. The next day he says, Jesus appeared to me and he told me I was on the wrong path. I, I believe it. Every word in the Bible is true. And he spent the rest of his life in chains, in misery, just for the opportunity to prove that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God. The resurrection of the dead is true. Countless people have tried to prove that the resurrection never happened. The problem is, you, you, you have to use the same judgments that are used in any type of ancient literature. And when you use those, you discover that the Bible is absolutely accurate. You might want to throw it out. That's your prerogative. But it doesn't change the truth because you pitch it away. He said the resurrection is everything. The resurrection is paramount. Why? So do you think it's crazy? Listen to what he says in verse 9. Indeed, I myself, I thought I had to do things contrary to the name of Jesus. And this I also did in Jerusalem. Many of the saints I put in prison, having received authority from the chief priests. Which, by the way, are sitting in the crowd next to Festus and King Agrippa. The same guys who sent him. They're there. They're their accusers now because they don't like Paul. Because all of a sudden he flipped. He changed. He changed. Radical change. He said, I, having received authority from the chief priests, and when they were put to death, I voted against them, put them to death, and I punished them often in every synagogue. That means they were scourged. The 39 lashes of what the Jews would do. Because 40 was the the described uh, uh, beating in Scripture. 39 was merciful. So they would give 39 lashes. Romans didn't do that. But the Jews did it. So they'd be beat in the, in the synagogue. He said, I punished them often and compelled them to blaspheme. He beat them so much and so hard they'd quit on Jesus. They'd say, no, I don't believe. Forget it. Whatever you say, just stop hitting me. He was proud that he could steal away somebody's faith like that. That's the guy that's standing before these people today. That's the man that God used. That's the man that God intercepted on a path that was in direct rebellion in the opposite direction of where God was. I caused men to blaspheme 
And being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them even into foreign cities. He was on his way to Damascus, it tells us. He imprisoned, he killed, and he caused to blaspheme. But, while I journeyed to Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priests, at midday, that's the first time we find out what time it was, at noon, O king, along the road I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining around me and those who journeyed with me. So as they're walking into Damascus, this light comes out of heaven, brighter than the sun. And it drives them to their knees, everybody. He saw the light. He saw the light from heaven. What is that light from heaven? The Scripture declares to us on the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus stood with Peter, James, and John. And see, He was transfigured before them. It said that there was a parting in His flesh. And the glory of God shone through Him. And it was brighter than the sun shining in its strength. That's Jesus. In case you're wondering, He's going to tell you it's Jesus in a second. That's the light. Jesus is the light. Didn't He say in the Gospel of John, I am the light of the world? I am the light. It dispels the darkness. And every time the light dawns, every man is faced with the same choice. You can run to the light and be enlightened. Or you can flee back to the darkness. The light hurts my eyes. Didn't the Lord say, Let your light so shine among men that they see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven? Let your light shine. Didn't He say, Take this light of the truth of the Word of God and don't hide it under a bushel or stick it under your bed, but put it on top of a mountain so everyone can see. Because there are people in the dark They would love to see a little bit of light and know where to go. And there are others. There are others that will see the light and run the other way. But see, your job is not to, to decide which man or woman it is. Your job is just to so shine. That your light would shine. The Lord appears to him. I saw the light. First he sees the light, then he hears a voice. Verse 14, And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice speaking to me, saying in the Hebrew dialect, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Kicking against the goads. There were were problems in Saul's conscience. Maybe it was the final tear rolling down a a father's face right before the final stone took him out as he glanced over to the side and saw the family that he was going to be separated from. Maybe Paul's or Saul's was the last stone. It's hard for you to kick against the goads. Maybe it's the word Stephen said while Saul was holding everyone's jackets and they were stoning Stephen. When the stones were falling upon him, and he, like his master whom he followed, 
would cry out from beneath the pile of rubble, Father, forgive them. Forgive them. The Bible doesn't tell us what the goads were. Goads is what was used to prod an ox to get him going. But there was definitely something going on in Saul's conscience that he was battling against. Something that was bugging him. Now, he was still striking out and he was still killing, but the, but the Lord comes to him and says, Why are you persecuting me? Isn't it hard for you to kick? Isn't it hard for you to kick against the goads? So Saul cried out, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Man, that phrase right there is amazing. See, not only is Jesus alive, not only is Paul seeing Him, but he is saying, I am so united with my people, when you persecute them, you hurt me. So united with His people, with the church. He says, rise, stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to make you a minister. By the way, that word minister means a lowly slave. A lot of times folks think the minister is something high and lofty. And maybe there should be honor in that place. I don't know. All I know is a minister is a slave. Number one slave, chief slave. The example of being a slave, of being a servant. The word specifically means an under rower. The guy in the bottom of the ship, when there's no wind in the sails, who sticks the oars out and starts paddling. Jesus said, I've called you to be a minister, an under rower, servant, making the ship move. I have a plan for your life. And to witness both of the things which you have seen and the things which I will reveal to you. So not only is everywhere Saul goes, he's going to share the vision of Christ that he's having right now. But the Lord's also going to reveal things out of His Word. He's going to write epistles. Thirteen epistles in the Word of God are attributed to Paul. He's going to write. He's going to guide. He's going to plant churches. He's going to move on three different missionary journeys. Doing amazing things. He says, I will deliver you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I now send you. And then he gives the commission to open their eyes. To open their eyes. Isaiah 61 tells us that Messiah was coming to open the eyes of the blind. Do you know that Psalm 146 verse 8, it says, Yahweh, Jehovah, the Lord God Almighty, capital L-O-R-D, opens the eyes of the blind. Nobody else opens their eyes. God does. You see, God's calling Paul to a mission that it's not Paul's job to do the job. God will do the job. Paul just has to go and shine. He's got to go be the light. He's got to go shine. He says, listen, I want you to open their eyes. Isaiah 42, 6, I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. And will hold your hand, I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the Gentiles, to open blind eyes. To bring prisoners out of the prison and those who sit in darkness. 
from the prison house. God, in Isaiah, Paul says, I believe this word. I think it literally, we're supposed to be a light. Just like the light that I saw. Jesus said, come and follow me. I am the light of the world. He called us to let our light so shine. So we follow Him in little lights. When Christmas Eve service, we're going to sit in here and we're going to have a candle lighting service. And it's beautiful, but it symbolizes the reality that we are to shine like lights in a dark world. So that people will either come toward us and receive the truth of Christ or make a choice to reject and go deeper into the darkness. But the one who opens the blind eyes is not you. It's not your words. It's not some perfect track that you found. It's not some perfect concept you have. God does that. You just got to be a light. Do you get what I'm saying? We just got to be a light. He says, I'm sending you to open blind eyes, but it's God who opens blind eyes. He says, I want you not only to open their eyes, look, but to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. He says that not only am I calling you to open eyes, but I'm calling you to change their direction. But you know what the Word of God, what Paul himself would write in Colossians chapter 1 while he's in prison? In verse 13 he says, He, God, has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love. Who moves us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light? God does. What was Paul's job? Shine the light. Present yourself a tool in the Master's hand that He might use. He will change their direction. He will open their eyes. To what purpose? That they may receive forgiveness of sins. Only the Lord can do that. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord, Yahweh, Jehovah. Though your sins were like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. God forgives sin. Paul can forgive it. He can go and shine the light and God will do the work. But Paul must go. And not only that, and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Whenever we talk about salvation, it's important to understand theological term salvation as a past, present, and future. It's past, present, future tense. Past tense is justification, justified, made just as if I'd never sinned. Present tense, sanctification, this being set apart to become holy like Jesus Christ. The future tense, glorification, that one day when I see Him, I'll be like Him. I have been saved, I am being saved, and I will be saved. All three wrapped up in that in that phrase. He said, all those who are sanctified, present tense, being saved right now, you have an inheritance with them. What's this inheritance that we have with them? Romans 8. Paul, the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him that we may also be glorified together. Joint heirs with Christ. The same inheritance that Jesus has, we have. 
The promise of the resurrection. The promise of being with Him forevermore. Those are all promises fulfilled in that final stage of salvation and glorification. The inheritance. That's what Paul's talking about. He goes on. Therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus and in Jerusalem and throughout Judea, and then to the Gentiles that they should repent, turn to God, and do works fitting repentance. Immediately he started to shine. His life radically changed. All his buddies that he used to play cards with now sit in court charging him. Everything is radically different in his life, but he possesses a vigilant and resolute attitude about his calling. i got to shine my light. Remember Acts 20? But none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I might finish my race with joy in the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus, that I might testify the gospel of the grace of God. He had to go. He had to tell. Therefore, having obtained help from God, to this day I stand witnessing both the small and great, saying no other things than those which the prophets and Moses said would come, that the Christ, the Messiah, would suffer, that He would be the first to rise from the dead. Now, Jackie, you just said other people rose from the dead. They did. But they did something else that Jesus didn't do. What did they do? They died again. They died again. Here, when it says to be the first to raise from the dead, it means He rose from the dead, period. Didn't ever die again. And is seated at the right hand of God the Father. And there He makes intercession. He prays for you and I. He's there now. Doing exactly what God said He would do. Paul says... Now, as he made this statement that God was the first to rise from the dead and would proclaim light to the Jewish people and the Gentiles, Festus stood up and said, Paul, you are crazy! You're crazy! Interrupted his message. Stood up. You're nuts. The world has always called God's people crazy. At least the ones who want to walk the way he walked and do what he did. 1913, William Borden, 26-year-old graduate from Yale, left his palatial home in Chicago, gave away $500,000. By the way, in 1913, that was a lot of money, just in case it's not to you today. All to become a missionary in the Muslim world in 1913. Everybody said he was crazy. Six months later, he died of cerebral meningitis in a Cairo hospital. And the world would say, see, I told you it was nuts. I think God would disagree. In 1885, the Cambridge Seven, including C.T. Studd, England's most famous athlete, left for China. They were ridiculed because they're a little too enthusiastic. They're really taking this religion thing too seriously. Getting too caught up in it. I mean, that's okay. Just leave it a Sunday deal. But for crying out loud, don't quit your cricket career. 
Well, that's English version of baseball, in case you don't know. The world has always thought they were crazy. 1982, Sparks Magazine, in an article called Faith is Madness, documented that the then Soviet Union, their position on religion was belief in God is considered a delusion. At that time, treatment for this disorder included drugs for psychosis and electric shock, among other forms of torture. They said it was the patients who were crazy. Millions of people starve every day on one side of the world, while on the other side of the world, people will spend $100 on a pair of jeans. But they call the Christians crazy. Consider the insanity of a society who mourns the epidemic of AIDS, among other diseases, due to sexual license, but mocks those who would suggest that the solution is abstinence and chastity. All those people are crazy. See, the world's always had it backwards. Always. We're not crazy. They are. But we can't take the crazy away. You can't make it go by sheer power of will. You have one job God's asked you to do. Shine your light. Reflect the love of Christ. And when they call you crazy, remember that you're just following in the footsteps of your Master. Don't you remember? Mark chapter 3, that when Jesus went home, the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And His family heard it. They went out to seize Him and said, He has lost His mind. John 10.20, many of them said, He has a demon. He is insane. Why listen to Him? Indeed, the charges of the crazy. But right after He stands up and says, You're crazy. Paul says, I'm not mad, most noble Festus, but I speak the words of truth and reason. For the King, whom I also speak freely, knows these things. I'm convinced none of these things escapes His attention. Since this thing wasn't done in a corner, what's he saying? He says, Agrippa, you know Jesus was crucified. Come on, brother, your family has been at war against the Christ, the Messiah, since your great-grandpa, who was the one who slaughtered the children in Bethlehem. Or your father who cut off the head of James and imprisoned Peter. And now you, brother, you know, you've lived in the middle of all this. You lived in it. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. Do you believe what the Word of God says? Then Agrippa said, you almost persuade me. Some of your Bibles may say, well, you you think in such a short time you could persuade me. Both are pretty accurate. The idea is, I'm not persuaded. It's going to take more than this. That's the last time Paul's going to get to talk to him. Don't you understand? God in His providence took the best tool that He had 
on the day that he wanted to reach into Agrippa's life and Bernice's life and Festus' life and all those people. And he presented the gospel. He presented the light. He showed it to them. And they ran for the darkness. Sometimes that's what man does. All we can do is shine the light. And the man will either step into the light or remain in the darkness. I'm going to share three more scriptures. I'm going to read them. And uh, we're going to go into a time of worship. We postponed uh, communion this week for this purpose. I just want to give an opportunity. We have shown the light today. Somebody here may still be in darkness. I don't know. But if you are, we're going to play a song. We're going to enter into worship. And we're during that time, we're leaving the altar open for anybody who would like to come to the light. Most important decision you'll ever make. Bar none. Just like Paul standing before Damascus, we stand here today and we shine the light. Men will be drawn to the light or flee the light, but they got to be given the opportunity. And to be given the opportunity, we have got to shine. So I'm going to share these scriptures, and Fritz and Joni and the girls will come on up, and we'll enter into a time of worship, into an altar call, and if the Lord lays on your heart to come forward, I want to invite you to do so. But I want you to hear, I want you to hear, please hear what Jesus said. In John 3, you know the verse. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved He who believes in Him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world, but men love the darkness rather than the light.